1: ASAP. I was listening to some of your messages the other day. Yes.
0: Hi. I have actually twofold an assignment and it's based on.
1: And And there was one from Sherry in Sacramento and it kind of caught my ear because it was in response to our conversation about what Donald Trump wants to do if he gets voted back into the White House. I was very disheartened to say the
0: least. And my assignment is Why so many minorities, Blacks, Latinos, whomever, support Donald Trump? I mean, geez, the man is a racist, misogynistic pig. I'm sorry. Why would you support him? I don't understand that. It's almost like you're going against your community.
1: Now that last part is really interesting to me because there are so many people who talk this way who are especially struck by how deeply committed Trump voters can be.
2: In 2016 when Donald Trump was uh the, the candidate, I personally could not imagine Christians voting for the guy because of the, his character, these these things. And so when I began to say um criti- offer critiques about Donald Trump, I found significant resistance. And not just resistance, it was almost like I was attacking them at a deep center.
1: And they look for all kinds of reasons for why that might be. And so for people who live and work on political fault lines, what have they learned about how to communicate with people they love, but don't seem to understand? On this episode of The Assignment, an evangelical pastor on the lessons he has learned from the last few years of political divisions in the pews. So there's this theory in psychology, without getting too technical, it basically treats a family like a system, where everything that affects one member of the family affects everyone. And if emotional boundaries are really blurred or enmeshed, an attack on one feels like an attack on all.
2: Simply stated, it's, it's an inability to know where someone ends and where someone else begins. And we see the enmeshment in sports. Um, we, we see enmeshment in the things that matter most to us. And we see enmeshment in, in politics.
1: Rich Velotis is not a psychologist. He is a pastor at the New Life Fellowship Church. It's in the heart of Queens.
2: I'd say 30% of our congregation voted for Donald Trump. 30% of our congregation voted for Joe Biden. I'd say this is my unofficial pastoral estimate here, Survey: 20% probably voted for Spider-Man because he's from Queens. And then the other 20% are undocumented and, and cannot vote. And so
1: that's kind of the lay of my land here. And so he's among those evangelicals who are not considered part of the political religious right as we know it. So I asked him to define it.
2: What's fascinating is I would, in many respects, identify as a, a theological evangelical, in the in, for me, in the best sense of the word, which means a high view of scripture, um, a, um, a, a recognition of Jesus being at the center of what we do. Um, uh, the invitation and the call to uh, following Jesus in discipleship, um, the work of justice and mission in the world. For me, that's, that's a theological evangelical. Um, but there's another way of thinking about evangelicals from a cultural perspective, where it is the, uh, um, the, the dominance of a particular thread of religion uh, that is to be asserted over everything else. Um, And the way that I've thought about that is evangelicalism in our culture is often um, oriented around having Christianity pervade our culture
1: without having Christ really pervade our own soul. So on Instagram, you wrote, The exhausting but important work pastors have is helping the people we lead move beyond enmeshment with the political figures they support. People are so enmeshed that it's hard to distinguish political figures from themselves.
2: And so for me, I was trying to identify the domino effect because I know what it's like to pastor a church through intense political polarization. I started noticing so much reactivity and emotionality
1: when particular candidates were being critiqued. What does that mean? Does that mean groans during the sermon? Does that mean the world's most awkward coffee hour? What did that look like?
2: It looks like uh, inflammatory social media posts from people that I pastor. It means um, awkward and intense conversations within small groups that gather in apartments in New York City, groups of maybe seven to 10. It means um, uh, pretty awkward conversations happening in the church lobby after services.
1: Where people are looking at each other or they're looking at you? It's more
2: so, Pastor Rich, do you see what's happening in the world? So I make myself available after services to have conversations with people. And I just found it very uh, eye-opening, especially in 2020, to see the levels of fear. But not just levels of fear. Uh, In 2016, when Donald Trump was uh, the the candidate, um, I... I personally could not imagine Christians voting for the because of the, his character, these, these things. And so when I began to say, um, criti- offer critiques about Donald Trump, I found significant resistance. And not just resistance, it was almost like I was attacking them at a deep center, which was where I got the fusion from. And the domino effect was essentially this. To critique a, a political party, a figure, is to critique the party that I belong to. To critique the party that I belong to is to critique fundamental values that I hold. To critique fundamental values that I hold is to critique my understanding of the Bible. To critique my understanding of the Bible is to critique uh, my conception of, or perception of who God is. And to critique my perception of who God is is to critique me at my deepest center. And so I started seeing, well, to critique this person, the domino effect, uh, sooner or later, it's you're attacking me.
1: Makes sense if you think about that period where Hillary Clinton got all that criticism for using the term basket of deplorables, talking about the mix of people who support Trump, Um, but also all the time since that you've heard someone say, I don't know how anyone could support this guy. They must be blank crazy, blank this, blank that, like that, that those criticisms hit and you're saying a deeper place. Absolutely, which as a pastor, what I recognized was um,
2: when you're up close having actual conversations with people uh, and not trying to get to know people from the distance of social media, we begin to see their own concerns, their own values that begin to show up, um, which are a lot more, I think, complex.
1: So how do you know you are starting to fall into this, to use this technical term, enmeshment?
2: You know, as as a follower of Jesus, I think my response to that is: To what degree am I allowing myself to see the world and be shaped by a particular vision that Jesus sets out, as opposed to uh, being shaped by the partisan talking points of a particular party? Uh, it, uh, it, you know, being against a group of people that I feel threatened by. I think so. Who is shaping you at your deepest center, I think, is the question.
1: You also talked about, can I criticize this thing I feel attached to?
2: Absolutely. As I think about it, one of the marks of someone who is moving beyond enmeshment is one's ability to be self-critical. And not just self-critical regarding myself, self-critical regarding the, uh, the, 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 the politics that I hold to um, which is a which is a Christian virtue, uh, an ability to confess our own limitations, our own sins, our own gaps. If we are unable to do so, um, I, I think what begins to happen is our lives are more akin to uh, that. That's really an expression of idolatry, more than anything else. The inability to recognize the limitations of not just my own life, but things that I hold to, whether they be politics or otherwise.
1: By the time the 2020 election came around, Pastor Rich Velotis was really into this enmeshment idea, and he really wanted to heal the divisions amongst his diverse congregation in Queens. So he decided to just tackle the issue head on, and he wrote a series of sermons called God, Politics, and the Church. I want to go into
2: our next message today and focus on the role that fear plays in our lives, especially political fear, social fear, and the ways that we have been so co-opted and impacted and formed and paralyzed by fear in the world. And so I want to talk about the, the love that
1: casts out fear. And then he invited the congregation to a Zoom conversation. This was obviously during the pandemic. And it was between two people, members of the church, who had very different political beliefs. So we're going to have two people in our congregation.
2: One, a Korean-American man who was voting for Trump. Um, On the other side, there was a Puerto Rican uh, man who was voting for Biden. And this was going to be moderated by an African-American millennial man. Um, Because that's, that's Queens. That's how we do it in Queens.
1: Pastor Rich didn't know how this would go over but 200 people logged in to listen. And
2: uh, I open up by talking about um, why this is important, uh, why this is part of our spiritual formation and discipleship to think about the world and the larger implications of what it means to belong to this world. And then the larger questions were, why are you supporting this person? What's the story behind it? What's fueling the way you're seeing the world, which leads you to this particular conclusion? And um, Audie, was it was it awkward? Oh yeah, there were some, and then and then it's Zoom, so you know people are in the chat session, blowing up the chat. And this is not to romanticize difference or uh, or to idealize difference. Uh, there were significant differences in terms of policy, in terms of how people see the world. And yet, I think we were trying to offer, there is a way of actually having conversation that's marked by curiosity um, and not uh, demonizing. A way of seeing people who are um, image bearers of God, who have come to a different conclusion. And while we might significantly and passionately disagree with their conclusion, what does it look like to offer an alternative to how the world currently exists?
1: I want to talk about what's happened since you gave these sermons. This was back in 2020. Now, what are you hearing? How do these divisions surface? Or did people leave the church? Certainly some left the church. Um, not not a lot. But aren't people like, hey, Rich, I'm sick of this? I, I get
2: emails all the
1: time about that.
2: One email would say something to the effect of, um, we should just focus on spiritual things.
1: So you're talking too much about the politics of the moment? Yes.
2: The the gospel is really about the age to come. You know, life after death, uh, not what's happening right now. And so it's a very truncated view of the gospel, which is why I get those emails.
1: Do they feel like, I need a break? This is in the news. This is in the papers. This is everywhere I go. This political rancor is everywhere.
2: I think that's part of it as well. I mean, the tensions that we feel— are are ubiquitous because of twenty four seven news cycles, social media. Uh, I mean, the democratization of our words because of social media has only intensified what we feel. Everyone has a platform to say what they want to say.
1: So, where does that leave a pastor? In lots of trouble.
2: <laughs> I mean, it leads. It, it leads. It well, number one. It leaves me with a better understanding of what the people believe that I'm pastoring and preaching to, which is a gift, I'm able to go, oh, I, you know, I carried lots of assumptions. Um, you know, as a pastor, I I hurt a lot of people with my words because I could not believe that Christians would support Donald Trump. And then I realized, oh, there's not just some people in my church. There are a number of people in my church. And so, and 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 then why? Um, and so, um It has, without question, been eye-opening over the last number of years, which I think has helped me to be a better pastor.
1: We'll have more with Pastor Rich Velotis after this break.
0: This show is sponsored by ADT. Introducing ADT Self-Setup. Featuring everything from motion sensors to Google Nest Cams and the Nest doorbell with a battery or wired option. Easily install the ADT self-setup security system at your convenience. No heavy-duty tools are needed. And if you need help, ADT can provide virtual assistance along the way. ADT self-setup grows, moves, and adapts as your needs change. You can add more products at any time and your system easily moves wherever life takes you. It also features Nest Cams that can tell the difference between a person, an animal, a vehicle, or with Nest Doorbell, even a package. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. You can view video of an alarm event and verify or cancel an alarm with just a tap. Now everyone can get trusted security from ADT installed your way, with no long-term contracts. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google, Nest Cam,
1: Nest Doorbell, and Nest Aware are trademarks of Google LLC. So one of the whys you've un- come to understand is this fusion between like people's personal identity and this political person they're supporting. Are there other whys that you've come to have answers for over the last few years in this arena? Because finding out you hurt people is a pretty tough one.
2: Yeah. I mean. Without question. I, I took a lot for granted and made too many assumptions. I, I think because of the vast diversity of my congregation, people are coming from all kinds of theological traditions and moral traditions. Uh, and so anything as it relates to like abortion, for example, you know, we the, what I was hearing in the lobby was we need someone who's going to get particular judges who's going to, you know, uh, pass certain laws regarding things like abortion, and and this was for many. I, you know, if I get thirty percent of a congregation, it's about fifteen hundred people. It's a lot of people who believe that this is a core moral issue that needs to be, um, uh, you know, uh, paid close attention to. And so, um, not just
1: paid close attention to where Christians should be active in the public sphere.
2: Absolutely. And and that these values need to have institutional uh, support uh, politically. That's you, the institution, right? Right? Yeah. Like
1: there's like, Pastor Rich, why aren't you saying X about abortion?
2: Yes, absolutely. And everything else for that matter uh, from people at, at different, uh, you know, all over the political spectrum in my
1: church. So abortion, what are some other issues where things started to surface you realized you had to pay closer attention?
2: I mean— More generally, it was, um, you know, people really believed that to have um, uh, someone from a, you know, Donald Trump would help the Christian faith, the Christian religion, take more of a prominent position in our culture. Again, because people are afraid of secularization. They're afraid that the church is moving more to the margins. And so you would hear, no, we need need someone who's going to help the church Help Christianity remain at the center uh, that lives deep inside of people. Were they wrong? I think any attempt to try to centralize Christianity by means of political power is wrong. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, and when he te- when he teaches that great prayer, "Your kingdom come, your your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Um. Jesus does not need a political party to be in power to advance his mission.
1: But you realize when you see the power of the religious right that you're in a way a minority on this. I absolutely know that. What is it like in pastorland?
2: pastor in New York City. So my context is much different. You're
1: out. You're out of the club. <laughs> you're not in the club. I don't think I've ever been in it. Well, let me ask a different question then. You you gave the example of abortion. Are there issues that people on the left in your church wanted more support from you? Wanted to hear from the pulpit saying if you're going to talk about this and you 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 should talk about these other things too.
2: Yeah, I think um as it relates to racial justice, which is something that we've been committed to over the years. So, um, you know, after George Floyd was murdered, uh, there were lots of appeals for our church to do something about it, uh, to respond, to join in the public outcry of, um, uh, you know, of, of this injustice. Um, there are people within our church who would have a particular view on human sexuality. At our congregation, because of its diversity, there are there's everything across the spectrum. Whether it's human sexuality, whether it's uh, politics, whether it's abortion, whether it's race, and so I I hear it from all sides on a regular basis.
1: You mentioned this thing about realizing that you had kind of hurt some parishioners in in the way you had spoken prior. Yeah, did you feel like you had end up kind of rallying from a position, um, cheered on by other congregants? In some ways, yes. I mean,
2: depending on what I'm preaching on, for example, there was a two-part series on uh, racism. And I talked once on individual racial prejudice and everyone loved me. And then I talked about institutional racism. And not everyone was as happy with me with that. Um, And so I think there are going to be folks who are going to cheer me on, who have cheered me on. In the case with Donald Trump in 2016, um, some of the things that I was saying from the pulpit or saying on social media, there are lots of amens around that. Like, yeah, why, why should we vote for this guy? What I didn't see as a pastor was, again, the enmeshment, which in many ways, as a pastor, my primary job is to care for souls, not to try to um, assert whatever political talking points uh, that I think are important. My first job is, that doesn't mean that these things are mutually exclusive, but I know that the way that I was even approaching the issue was um, not taking seriously the people within my own congregation. That didn't mean I, I, I still didn't have particular values and a way of seeing the world, but I think the way that I was now trying to remain connected to those people while recognizing how distinct my ideas were from them i think back to family systems that's the language differentiation remaining close you know a, a, distinguishing myself while while not becoming disconnected and i think the the connection part is what i've learned over the years um the first part in 2016 it was more of the distinguishing part
1: So now that you have come to understand some things about that period, you talk about this idea of the work going forward. What does that involve for you and other pastors who are not like in the religious right or other faith leaders who are not, you know, part of a a more right-wing movement? You know, for me
2: as a pastor and in the work of our congregation and trying to uh, hold a congregation together in a world that's increasingly being fractured and tearing itself apart when I preach those sermons in 2020 and I might have to preach the same set of sermons in 2024 again
1: does that feel like progress
2: um uh no uh it doesn't at the same time I think as human beings we need to be reminded of some really important things on a regular basis um, And so I began every message with, no matter who you vote for, you're welcome to come to our church. You vote for Donald Trump, you're welcome to come here. You vote for Joe Biden, you're welcome to come here. However, my hope is that you would not see Jesus through the lens of your politics, but that you would see your politics through the lens of Jesus and what he prioritized. Uh, That you would live with great humility uh, and curiosity as to why people see the world differently than you do. Uh, and that you will be prayerful that that's kind of my appeal and I have I have discovered again that at the end of the day my primary task is to help people to recognize how distinct they
1: are while not disconnecting the reason why I'm digging into this is because there are people who have described the a religious fervor with connection to Trump or you know, in their most kind of critical, calling it a cult, Um, kind of Mm -hmm. talking about how much support he has and the nature of that support. And it just strikes me that the thing you're talking about is a lot harder to break apart Mm -hmm. than we think. Like, if I can't even criticize this person (laughs) without you feeling like your personal, everything about you, is actually being attacked as yes. a person culturally, everything. Then, like, how can any of us have any real conversation critically? How can any of us as a journalist talk in the world in the realm of facts?
2: Yes, which is why I think, you know, the logo for our church is an iceberg. And it's it's this idea that what needs to be explored is the 90% that's beneath the surface, the 10% is visible. And I think the task for leaders, for people who actually want to see the world um, move towards wholeness and healing and civility and the common good is to help people identify what's happening actually beneath the surface.
1: But it feels like I'm having a fact-based discussion with faith-based people in the political space.
2: Yes. And I think the underlining question um, now, to some degree, there are folks who are so now caught up on facts or lies or spin, whatever it is, that it's it's really difficult to have any sort of conversation with them. And I think at that point, I recognize my limits as a human being, as a pastor. There's only so far I can go with some people. And that's painful. And that's a rec- something that I've had to recognize. These are my limits here. I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. Uh, I can do my best here. Uh, but for those who are willing to explore, and I and at least within my community, there are people who are willing to explore what is actually happening beneath the surface. What's what's
1: what is animating? What is forming the way that you're seeing the world? You said that this is difficult work that you feel called to. Um, why? Yes, why? Um, you know Langston Hughes. Um,
2: he wrote a a poem called Tired. And he said, I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. And when Hughes talks about cutting the world in two, he's not talking about language of division, it's language of depth. That unless we look deep beneath the surface, we're not gonna be able to see the worms that live within us. Um, I, I believe that there's good news for the world marked by wholeness and healing and life beyond our fragmentation. And so as a follower of Jesus as a pastor, I believe this is part of what the good news is, and so more than anything
1: it's it's my calling. How will you know, you know, you're succeeding? I think the litmus test for
2: for the theology that I preach, for the gospel that I proclaim is love. Love not rooted in sentimentality. I mean, love rooted in um, the commitment to another's well-being, to a life of curiosity and compassion. How do I know? I think when people are actually saying, there is a world that exists outside of my own perspective, there are stories that need to be heard and cherished and exalted that might not reflect how i see the world and where i come from very different email a very different email
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what you've been getting it sounds like uh, well, and i've had i've
2: had my share of positive ones as well but for me for me that, the litmus test is are people moving towards a greater capacity to love particularly in the words of jesus to love enemies
1: That was Rich Velotis, pastor of New Life Fellowship Church in Elmhurst, Queens. He's the author of several books, including Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. So as you heard at the top of the show, I have been going through your feedback, taking in your ideas, and if you have more, please give us a call, because we listen to them. Our number is 202-854-8802. You can text, you can leave a voice memo, and of course we might use some of that in a future episode. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Carla Javier. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez, and our engineer is Michael Hammond. Dan DeZula is our technical director. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. We got support from Haley Thomas, Alex Manissari, Robert Mathers, John Dionora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jameis Andrus, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Namarow. Special thanks to Katie Hinman. And congratulations, because you have a baby. I'm Audie Cornish. Thank you for listening.
0: ASAP.